This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to this week's Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. As the clock ticks down to the European Council meeting next week, can Boris get a last minute deal with the EU? Plus, we look at whether Extinction Rebellion is just the latest doomsday cult. And finally, what's the right way to shoot a pheasant? Time seems to be running out for a Brexit deal. And if Boris Johnson can't get one before next week's European Council, he'll almost certainly have to request a Brexit extension. So, what options does he have left? Katie Balls talks to The Telegraph's Europe editor, Peter Foster, together with James Forsyth about the latest Brexit developments. So we've had a week in which various number 10 sources, one in particular to James Forsyth, have suggested that the Tories are ready to move to pushing no deal quite heavily if the EU fail to respond to their proposed offer. Over on the EU side, there's little sign that they are going to do as Johnson and his colleagues hope. And we seem to be heading to an EU council summit where little is agreed and Boris Johnson may not even be there. James, can you just give us an update of where exactly we are with the prospects of a Brexit deal? Kind of sub 1% this side of October 19th. Well, maybe not sub 1%, but very, very low. Because essentially, the two sides are still too far apart on customs. Boris Johnson's red line is that the UK must leave the EU with its customs territory intact. The EU position is there cannot be checks anywhere on the island of Ireland. And if Northern Ireland is not in the same customs territory as the Republic, there would have to be checks somewhere on the island of Ireland. And that means the two sides are fundamentally too far apart to negotiate. And I think on on everything else in Boris Johnson's proposal, the precise nature of the way that the consent mechanism works, level playing field provisions for Northern Ireland, the UK is prepared to negotiate. On the customs territory question, it is not. Peter, do you hold out any expectation, hope could be the wrong word, that a deal could be agreed ahead of this EU Council summit, um, working and hearing what you were hearing from your Brussels contacts? No, no, I don't. I mean, I think... Sub-zero one, or would you go Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, once you've got to zero, where do you go? Uh, You know, James is right, you know, it's a quite binary binary issue. And in the time available, if you think, if you were going to have a deal text, it would have to be you know, going around the capitals, you know, Barnier needs to brief EU capitals and by their ambassadors on Friday. Uh, and then the you know, the text has to go around the capitals, has to be agreed at General Affairs Council on Tuesday to have any prospect to go to the leaders on Thursday, Friday. So I think, you know, it is quite a binary issue. I think the EU never felt Johnson's proposal was serious. You know, he asked for a treaty commitment never to have checks on that border between Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland and then handed effectively the DUP the right to veto even the level flame, even the the bits of the agreement that would leave Northern Ireland in the single market for goods. So from an EU perspective, it was just a non-offer. You know, the Brits offered to put a customs border in the RSC or rather a regulatory border in the RSC, but couldn't even say how that was going to work. They weren't going to use the EU system. They were going to use their own, which is not yet built. And the EU would be downstream from that border, which, you know, they want a whole load of customs derogations. They want small businesses, massive exemptions all over the place. And they can't even say how VAT is going to work, how collection is going to work. From an EU perspective, they were just asking for a kind of shotgun wedding to take an enormous punt on a whole load of British pledges when they look across the channel and, frankly, don't trust the Brits further than they can throw them. So whatever your views about Brexit, you know, that is how the EU sees the deal. And unless 
as James says, Boris Johnson pivots. I'm talking a triple Lutz here, you know, a veritable, a veritable triple Lutz. There's absolutely no way you can get a deal. Now, there were a few issues. There was a sense on the UK side, at least, that the government might be willing to move on in the space of negotiation. But I suppose the largest sticking point appears to be the fact that Boris Johnson wants Northern Ireland to leave the customs union and be the rest of the UK, whereas on the Brussels side, it seems that particularly Leo Varadkar will never countenance a situation where Northern Ireland is out of the customs union sense of being in a customs territory different to the rest of the country, rest of Ireland. Peter, do you think that ever be a point, perhaps in the future, perhaps if the Tories win a majority, where the customs union issue is something that Brussels will come around to? Not really. I think you need to have effective and operable solutions. Now, the Leo Varadkar position is you can't do that off the shelf in short order without leaving Northern Ireland in the customs territory of the EU. Because otherwise, if you've got two customs territory A and customs territory B, you need to have checks between the two. Let's say we've done a trade deal with the United States in the interim and we've got chlorinated chicken. How do you make sure the chlorinated chicken doesn't go into Northern Ireland... And if it does go into Northern Ireland, how do you make sure it doesn't go into Southern Ireland? Now, there are various schemes to do that. But until you know the status of the UK trading arrangements with the EU, you can't then work out how much work that border has got to do. Because the EU, to be fair to it, has always said it's open to alternative arrangements. But it needs to know what those alternative arrangements, what the technology's got to do. James, do you agree with that? I think it's worth backing up the track a little bit. This is not in Northern Ireland's economic interest for it to be in a separate customs territory from Great Britain. It exports way more to Great Britain than it does to the Republic or to the rest of the EU. And I think that if you look at the Boris Johnson proposal, which I think was, I think, I think the EU have, as Peter has been detailing, has had great fun kind of going, what, what's your answer to this? What's your answer to this? Kind of like, you know, kind of like a kind of prep school um, headmaster kind of going through someone's rather bad Latin homework. But the point is, it was meant by Boris Johnson as a serious offer. The EU might not think it is. And I think if you look at it, it is trying to protect the bits of the all-island economy there are. That's why it signed up on agriculture. And I think the manufactured goods thing is, is not insignificant. And I think there is also another argument, which is if you want to talk about stability on the island of Ireland, I think the backstop was an inherently unstable creation in that you know, 80% of unionists didn't like it. And I think the history of Northern Ireland suggests that when things are opposed by the vast majority of one community or another then they are quite hard to maintain in the long term. James, I just want to touch on one other route to potentially a deal after a general election, which Mm. the Tories won a majority, which is we've had in the past, but might not be politically sustainable now, which is if Boris Johnson had a Tory majority, he wouldn't need to have the support of the DUP. And some argue you could go back to a situation with an Irish sea border and you have Northern Ireland staying in a customs territory with the rest of the island of Ireland. And that would mean the UK side in terms of outside of Northern Ireland, so Great Britain, could get the Brexit once Northern Ireland would stay in that customs territory. And perhaps that would be a route to a deal, something Brussels might go for. What, the chuck the Northern Ireland on the bus argument? Do you think that is something which there is any chance of this government, if it had a Tory majority, going for? Well, I mean, there there are two challenges to that. One on just on pure electoral arithmetic. I don't think anyone thinks... I don't think they'd call it the chuck it under the bus strategy. Yeah. Um, uh, No, no, I mean, so I don't think the Tories are going to win a big majority. And therefore, the DUP are going to maintain 
some, even if they win a majority, they won't win a big majority. The DUP so, will so we have a majority some, of 30. Some influence. But the second thing I would say is, I think this has, the customs territory point has become a point of principle, I think, for Boris Johnson. And I also think the other thing which is this is, Peter touched upon it when Boris Johnson talked about technical solutions. There is, there is, a, there is a world of difference here which is that Boris Johnson does... Now, you, you can say he's wrong, but he does think this is all technical stuff rather than being as fundamental as the EU thinks. He, it's a kind of classic divide between politicians and technocrats. You know, he is like, well, oh, come on, this is all just detail of forms. You know, we can sort that out. While as they are like, this is the legal order of a single market and, and the, the customs territory and all that. I, I find it hard to believe that he would budge on this customs point for Northern Ireland. I think there are ways to do it. You know, for example, right, the form that businesses fill in to export from GB to NI, I think it's entirely possible that that could have, you know, it would not be a customs declaration form because Northern Ireland would be in the same customs territory as the UK, but the form might happen to contain all the same information as would be contained on a customs declaration form. And that then gives you some options to move into some different space. I think things like that are all doable, but I think on the philosophical point, that Northern Ireland should be in the same customs territory as the UK is un, un, you know, not present. I mean, he was very excess. I mean, the fish point is worth remembering that, you know, under the old backstop regime, the kind of proof that Northern Ireland was in a different customs territory from Great Britain was that if, if, as Macron was saying, you had to exclude fish from it because the UK hadn't signed up to a common fisheries policy. If you had caught a fish in Northern Ireland and sent it to the UK and sent it to Great Britain, it would then be charged the tariff. So I think on that point of which customs territory Northern Ireland is in, I think, you know, I don't think he's prepared to move. I think, but I think he, would be, he is also the kind of politician who would be very open to the idea of Northern Ireland being in both customs territories. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and in order to make those kind of both customs territories, NCP-type things work, what you need is time, right? The EU are not going to do this on a wing and a prayer. Right. It's not the way they do business because the entire legal order and the way they do business with everybody else hangs on it. So if those schemes can be made to work, parallel customs territories, rebate schemes and all the rest of it. And by the way, you do hear among some member states openness to that. They do not want a, a no deal, but they're not going to do it on a, on, a, on a wing and a prayer. And I think, you know, the thing you have to remember about Northern Ireland is that in in a situation where we end up with, a no deal or this Canada minus Brexit that, that Johnson wants to do, you know, everyone is going to be showing up at the port struggling to get their paperwork in order, right? But at least as, you know, Bob Smith's transport heads towards Dover, he or she behind the wheel is doing their very best to get the paperwork in order. The thing you have to remember about the Northern Irish border, all of whose constituencies vote Sinn Féin, is that they actively do not want this border. And if you read someone like Katie Hayward at Queen's, University of Belfast has written a wonderful paper about alternative arrangements. The problem you've got is they do not want this border. They do not want cost and frictions between them and the Republic of Ireland. They feel that that is a massive undermining of what they won at the, at the Good Friday Agreement and the parallel constitutional realities there. And it's not about giving in to terrorists, etc. It's about understanding that the costs that you are imposing as they would see it in the name of delivering an English Brexit, right? You don't have to go and spend a week in Cross McGlen to know how deeply divisive this stuff is. And and I think, you know, it is actually to the kind of discredit of the Westminster political establishment that it has absolutely failed to understand. They should have took them all in a bus and take them all to the border and left them there until 
you know, they'd internalise what the actual on-the-ground issues are. Peter, finally, there's lots of chatter in Westminster at the moment about whether we'll get an election or perhaps a referendum first. And the Tories are presuming that if you get to the point where an extension has been granted, Labour and the SNP will get behind a general election. But there are some MPs in all these parties pushing for a second referendum first. Is there any expectation in Brussels from the figures you were speaking to that they think a second referendum will be the first thing up the track? It's a good question. I mean, you know, it's a question really that should be directed at James as much as me in James terms can of chip in, in terms of what it says. What I mean, the, the EU are absolutely now thinking about the choreography of how this extension happens. I think they assume, like the rest of us, that the law is the law and that Boris will kick and scream, but in the end, he'll have to do it. And so they are now obviously, like everybody else, looking forward. I think if you put them all in a room, I mean, this is a you know, twenty-seven nations, a broad spectrum of opinion that the assumption i'd be interested to see what james's thoughts on this is that in the end gravity takes over yes you hear all these talks about using the extension to put over may's deal with some bells on it with second referendum attached the second referendum so24 you know sees the order of business and and putting over the withdrawal agreement bill in some form etc but at the end of the day if you force the extension you force johnson to do what he doesn't want to do the scott nats are desperate for an election correct before the salmon trial before the salmon trial uh, it's hard for. I know Labour don't want an election, right? But they. It's hard. Is it? I mean, does it? Does gravity take over? That's my kind of assumption. I don't know what James. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I don't see how you don't end up with an election. Because I, I don't think that. I mean, but the problem with this Parliament on Brexit is there's no majority for anything other than delaying it and and not making a decision. And I think you know I don't see what the numbers haven't been there so far for a second referendum. So I don't quite see what you can do. And I think at some point it just becomes absurd. I think one of the big questions is, you've written about this, Katie, which is what do the opposition think? You know, those first polls in the week, the first week of November, are going to be hugely significant because the opposition have been betting on the idea that Boris Johnson is going to take a pasting when he you know, when Fails we don't deliver. leave on October the 31st. I think at the moment, if you look at the fact that, you know, what, 78% of Brexit party voters don't think it would be Boris Johnson's fault at all if we don't leave on October 31st. You know, if those polls don't show a dramatic shift, then I think we get into another, oh man, what do we do? I also think, don't forget the kind of factor of, does Corbyn want to get out into the country? Because the longer he stays in Westminster, the greater the risk is that people say, right... Well, what's the problem here? Conversely to that, I would say, because there's definitely an argument around people Labour make, which is dangerous for Jeremy Corbyn to put this off. There's also a danger in Jeremy Corbyn going to the polls. I mean, I think personally, from speaking to Labour figures, it's very unlikely they would move against Jeremy Corbyn until the general election. If you have a general election, which Labour don't do particularly well, which is currently their expectation, that's when Jeremy Corbyn actually becomes very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the EU, you look at this and they see all of those, you know, the risk of a hung parliament. The Tories are the largest party, but they can't form a majority, etc. My, my job station, I was listening to a lot of callers into the radio, into a radio talk show the other day. And I was just struck by how many callers in, it was an LBC, it was Matt Fry's programme, we were sort of saying, I'm sure Boris has got a ruse up his sleeve. I'm sure Boris has got a way he's going to do it, you know. And and there were three or four callers like who were that. And, and, I, and I wonder whether... Who knows But whether the disappointment for the average person who doesn't follow... It's, I mean, it's amazing, right? When you go out and you vox pop people, you know, a lot of... Even in Brexit, a lot of people don't follow the detail that closely. And at the end of the day, 
will there be just a disappointment? You said you were going to do it. I mean, that's quite a lot of ammunition. There's how many clips are there of them saying, we will leave on the 31st of October, do or die. But, you know, again and again and again and again and again. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a... He will have to have a dramatic moment where he tries everything in his power to do it and it's stopped. I think... I think, the... think that might come on the Saturday of a Parliament sitting? Oh, I, I would be very... I would, I would be shocked if they didn't try and overturn the Ben Act that Saturday. You know, just because it adds to drama. You know, you know I mean, this idea, and I think this is the, their electoral strategy, you know, which is in the kind of Hollywood movie trailer, there was one man trying to get Brexit done with all these forces ranged against him. The courts were trying to stop him. The Parliament was trying to stop him. But he kept on. <laughs> the party I mean, political broadcast. No, I mean, that is, the kind of, that is the kind of big Hollywood voiceover kind of thing that they want. And they want a moment of drama so that everyone says, oh, he's tried. You know, and the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, people don't blame him. That You know, this is... Uh, which I think, you know, I think all this, right regardless of whether there is a loophole in the Ben Act or not, right? And no lawyer has seems to have successfully identified one, right? Even if there is a loophole in the Ben Act, the courts are going to close it. You know, if they come round and say, oh, you didn't put that in Norman French, so it doesn't count. It is not <laughs> like the, the courts are going to say, oh, yes, uh, the intention of Parliament wasn't clear here. Mm-hmm. So that you can you can do that. I just don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I, I think the other thing, which is the, the great other great unknown question, it's what on earth happens in this general election. It is so unpredictable. And everyone, everyone, I think the Blair interview last night is interesting to the extent to which the rules, if we thought the rules had been ripped up to date, we ain't seen nothing yet. You know, he is suggesting that you could have a second referendum by the end of January. I mean, that, that, is, that is a breakneck timetable if ever you saw one. And I think, I think that we are in for even more drama because as this all gets closer, every, you know, everyone wanted to be the last, the last thing standing at the end. And I think for that reason, it's all the manoeuvrings are going to intensify. Thank you, James. Thank you, Peter. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts, and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef. And I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website, where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema, and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. Next, are supporters of Extinction Rebellion religious fanatics? That's the accusation levied against them by Toby Young in this week's issue, as the movement shuts down central London in its first week of protests. He points out that every generation has its own millenarianism, and XR, as Extinction Rebellion is known for short, is just the latest. Toby joins me now, together with Will Skeeping, a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, and the co-author of the Extinction Rebellion Handbook. Will, can you start by setting out what the aims of Extinction Rebellion are? Well, we are a movement who have three very clear demands, which I think makes life a bit easier. So we are first asking for the government and everyone to begin to tell the truth about the climate crisis, the climate and ecological crisis. I don't think in any way, meaningful way, that's been communicated to the public. The extreme sense of emergency, the urgency with which we need to tackle this is just not visible. And in fact, there's just been anything but resistance from large parts of the media to discussing this in any kind of reasonable way. The science is very clear, and we need to be listening to the scientists about this 
there's really very little to discuss in that department. It's man-made and we need to listen to them. The second thing we want to do is go carbon net zero by 2025, which sounds like a real Overton window shifter, as in they say 2050, we say 2025, maybe we meet in the middle. That's kind of what I thought when I first joined Extinction Rebellion. And now in light of the events of this year in terms of the climate science, what it's showing us, what's happening with the permafrost, what's happening with methane lakes bubbling away, what's happening with the Arctic melting, what's happening with the Amazon, Indonesia, Congo. There's a massive crisis. This year will go down as being a really significant leap in terms of temperature increase and on our way towards hitting runaway climate change. So 2025 is now looking more and more like a really reasonable target, I think. And again, nothing is at all impossible in this and our, we also want to halt biodiversity loss in general and any kind of obvious projects that are going to disrupt or affect our ability to get to 2025 net zero. So that's expansions of airports. It's perhaps HS2, which will be destroying forests. And our final demand is that we're not telling anyone what to do as Extinction Rebellion. We're not saying, oh, you need to go vegan or oh, you need to stop flying. What we're saying is we'd like to get citizens' assemblies, that's a sort of jury service, something of a thousand people together, cross-section of British society, and then they will make legally binding decisions about how we're going to get to 2025 based on the evidence to which they are exposed, which is scientists talking to them about this. And not just scientists, but people from all areas of expertise. Tovi, you say in your column this week that Extinction Rebellion is the best comedy in town right now. What do you find so amusing about them? Well, there's something, there's something intrinsically quite funny, I think, about the earnestness and the solemnity of the protesters who are very morally serious and yet dressed often in kind of outlandish, bizarre costumes such as, you know, red robes and white face paint. And there are all sorts of comic vignettes occurring all the time. So, for instance, a hearse pulled into Trafalgar Square on the first day of the protest with a coffin labelled Our Future in the back and it immediately had traffic ticket slapped upon it by an overzealous traffic warden. I saw George Monbiot, probably the highlight of my day out with uh, the protesters, was seeing George Monbiot at dusk on Millbank giving what to all intents and purposes was a sermon. So he stood on a little box and the kind of congregant sat around in a sort of hushed circle and he used this kind of very religious language. He talked about how the protesters were these gentle, kind, loving people, and they were up against this uh, vampiric, necrophilic system, uh, which was despoiling the earth. And we needed to purge ourselves of what was essentially this sin. I mean, it was a, and the whole the whole protest, I think, has this kind of very clear religious component. It, it has a lot in common with many previous millenarian movements, uh, doomsday cults. And it, it, what's 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 I think intrinsically funny about the protest is that. All these people seem to be animated by these religious ideas that have been floating around for 2,000 years and often look like they're kind of transported by religious fervour. They look like evangelicals being possessed by the Holy Spirit. Their eyes are burning brightly and they're so, they have this, this sort of overwhelming, overpowering sense of kind of righteousness and moral purpose. But they don't seem to realise that they are in the grip of what are essentially kind of Christian ideas. It's almost like a revival of Christianity in the late medieval kind of particularly febrile period and you can see parallels between Joan of Arc and Greta Thunberg a kind of child saint the idea of a kind of children's crusade and it, it did just strike me as quite funny but I can see why lots of people whose days have been disrupted whose journeys to work have been made much longer who've had to walk much further than usual and so forth I can see why they wouldn't see the funny side. 
Will, do you think that Extinction Rebellion is a sort of modern-day doomsday cult? I think the really strange thing about this is that the science is really expressing quite clearly that we are heading towards some kind of apocalyptic future if we don't do anything about this in the very near term. So we talk about you know a few degrees of warming, and I guess to the cynic or the uh, denialist or climate delayer, they would see that that means maybe a little bit of a kind of little less skiing, perhaps a nicer summer. But the reality is that the difference of four degrees is runaway climate change, which means end of crop failure mass displacement of people, war, famine, every children's book animal you've ever imagined gone. I mean, it sounds to me like a future that I don't think anyone wants to be a part of. And but what scientists have said that every every animal in children's books is going to be gone? Do you mean within the next billion years? What do you mean within the next, I, okay, within the next I, I think, decade? I think we're talking about the fact that we are driving mass extinctions of animals, mammals, uh, 1.4% of mammals have become extinct in the last 500 years. What makes you think that every single mammalian species is going to be extinct unless we decarbonise by 2025? Okay. It seems a little bit alarmist. Okay, so, so perhaps I can pull that back. Let's just say that we lose a few of those or a few iconic species. Would you be okay with that? Well, I looked at the projection in the UN report that was published in May, which claimed that a million species were at risk. And you talk about the science as if it's settled and if there is, as though it's absolutely certain and it's uh, completely irresponsible of us not to listen to the science. But I looked into that figure and it turns out that actually only less than 100,000 species have been assessed. And of those, they think approximately 27,000 are at risk. And by at risk, they mean that they there is a risk that they'll go extinct. There's a 10% risk that they'll go extinct within the next 100 years. And they often talk about this as an imminent risk of extinction. But actually, you know, if you said that there was a 10% risk of Man City being relegated from the Premier League in the next 100 years, you wouldn't say that Man City were at imminent risk of relegation. But in any event, this, what the scientists did was they said, OK, roughly 25% of the species we've assessed are at risk in that kind of rather negligible sense. Uh, and then they just multiplied that by four to come up with um, the sort of million figure. They said, you know, 20, we think there's roughly four million species in the world. So if 25% of the assessed species are at risk, that means a million species are at risk. We don't even know if there are four million species in the world. The number of species has never actually been totted up. It's not certain science. What's odd about this is that science is by its nature quite nuanced. Lots of things are multifactorial. It's a case of, and people are naturally going to disagree about the evidence and what weight to give to the evidence. But you proceed with absolute kind of feverish certainty as though there's no, no room for any ambiguity at all. If we don't decarbonise by 2025, we're all going to die. I think this is about the precautionary principle. This is simply saying that like, if there's a big risk that that's going to happen, then obviously you want to do everything to mitigate that risk. If you got on a plane and there was, uh, and someone called in a bomb alert, right? Do you get on, do you stay on the plane and go, well, you know, it's just, it'd probably be fine. You know, these things happen. Or do you go, okay, right, let's get off that plane right now. Let's find out what's going on and let's check. That's basic precautionary principle in action and we're talking about science here and if 99.9 percent or whatever it is 99 plus percent of scientists together go hey look man-made climate change is happening we can already look at what's happening to the ecosystems around the world acidification of the oceans increasing desertification drought extreme weather you know these are things which you can just see on the news at, at what point do you go do you know what actually perhaps we should do something just to make sure we aren't facing this right. apocalypse Okay, I'm not a denier. I mean, one of the illusions often made by 
people in the Extinction Rebellion movement is if you deny I, any... I, I wouldn't deny... I wouldn't be here if you were a climate denier or I believe that you were. Okay, but you know, I think I, I wouldn't deny for a second that global temperatures have increased over the past 100, 200 years. Man has probably played a factor in that, though that's less certain. But what, what, what slightly sticks in my craw is this claim that only people in this particular movement, people who support this movement, are wanting to do anything about this, and the rest of us are just sticking our heads in the sand. We're blind to the danger. But actually, this government has committed to decarbonisation by 2050, and that's going to be hugely disruptive and expensive. The calculation is it's going to cost about a trillion pounds. Just the cost of moving people off gas boilers. 24 million households in the UK heat their water and their homes with gas boilers. Replacing all of those is going to, is going to cost an estimated £15 billion a year between now and 2050. I mean, that's a huge ask. You've won an enormous victory. The government has essentially done your bidding. So now to say that's not enough, you have to decarbonise by 2025, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to stop people flying? You're going to, you know, strip away people's boilers without compensation? You're going to slap £600 on their energy bills? It's just completely unrealistic, isn't it? I think there's a few points here, which are mainly that Extinction Rebellion is really not ego-driven. We don't expect to win this. I certainly don't expect. I, you know, when I joined, I really wanted to make a difference and play a part in helping to avoid the worst effects of climate change and ecological collapse for my, for myself, for future generations, for people on the other side of the planet who aren't in the UK and don't make decisions about boilers and are already suffering. But I think one has to go through a kind of, and you mentioned religion before, there is a kind of grieving component of this, of recognising that the world that we're going to be living in in the future is already going to be markedly different, and that we are going to have to change business as usual if we're going to be able to avoid runaway climate change. So I think 2050 is generally, I mean, even Sir David King said that we should be pulling that back to a more ambitious earlier deadline. And 2050 is essentially, I think, not going to save us by any means and it's not a case of how many billions you put in either we do something that's substantial that actually does the job or we don't and this is going to be something which is going to affect everyone everyone all of us doesn't matter if you're poor rich right left it doesn't matter and that's why what we try and do and vision is a better vision than what is currently there so we'll turn streets into a celebration we will do things that involve face paint because it gets attention because it gets the media's attention on us we're doing everything we can to raise awareness around this issue but more importantly we need to include everyone within that and we're doing our very best to bring people from all walks of life into our movement because we're all going to have to make changes it's not just about the boilers and we all need to be part of that decision making process of how we begin to hit more ambitious targets than 2050. I think 2025 is possible. I think that, for example, the American government can switch to a wartime economy in six months in which everything changes. I don't think any of this is unreasonable. I think that the science dictates that we need to make dramatic sweeping changes. And it's certainly not Extinction Rebellion's job to go around telling people what to do. We don't have the ego. We don't expect that we're going to win this. If it requires the Prime Minister shaking hands with a crying child or whatever the optics are that are necessary for this transition to occur. I don't mind if it's not us. I don't mind if it's any other movement. We try and include as many other people and groups in what we're doing, but it's certainly not an ego-driven one where we need to be seen to win this. I suppose one, one of my concerns is that it does seem to me to be politically unrealistic to expect 
Western governments to commit to decarbonising by 2025. But you've created this movement, which at the moment is, as you say, fairly peaceful, playful even. Absolutely Um, peaceful, I'd say. But I think the, the, the fear that I have, and many other people have, is that if we don't, you know, if governments don't sign up to your agenda, if these citizens' assemblies aren't assembled and so forth, if we just stick to the decarbonising by 2050 date, that the movement will begin to metastasize into something much more dangerous and violent. People will have the kind of, they'll have given themselves the license to engage in, you know, terrorist activity. Often doomsday cults uh, start <laughs> off um, as quite benign seeming and kind of comic, uh, exactly, uh, but end up becoming kind of uh, terrorist organisations. And my worry is that, that Extinction Rebellion may metastasize into something much more dangerous and violent, and you may have created a monster that you may not be able to control. I think it's really vital. This non-violence is so baked into everything we do from the way that we had 1,100 arrests in April without a single incident of violence in any means. Our communication is non-violent. The way we conduct meetings is actively non-violent in every aspect of what we do. And I think it's sad to think that we would be going towards something more aggressive because it's just not what we're about. And the relationship and the grieving process of getting your head around the what we've even done as humans is implicitly recognizing we need less violence and i think that we've already started talking about adaptation within our movement it's something we're all going to have to begin to do because we do have 20 30 years more extreme weather effects locked in as a result of the carbon emissions and the fossil fuels we've burnt in a, into our atmosphere so we're starting to think more about going hey how are we all going to adapt to this already grimmer future it's not about violence it's about recognizing that there potentially will be violence on the horizon but it certainly won't be coming from within extinction rebellion will and toby thank you very much thank you this episode is sponsored by more than a number the brand new podcast from the institute of chartered accountants in england and wales And finally, have you ever been invited on a commercial pheasant shoot? These shooting days promise hundreds of birds shot by you and your friends, even for those with absolutely no shooting experience or even perhaps talent. It's a booming industry, but Patrick Galbraith, editor of Shooting Times, writes in this week's issue that they're environmentally damaging and wasteful. He joins me now, together with country sports journalist Charlie Jacoby, who joins us down the line. Patrick, you say in your piece this week that if we don't stop the rise of hyper-commercial shoots, they're going to damage the whole industry. Why exactly do they cause so many problems? I think, first of all, we need to say that shooting, when it's done right, is very good for our environment and very good for biodiversity. But, you know, there are question marks hanging over shooting at the moment. And, um, you know, that is uh, raptor persecution. That is too many birds being shot. Um, You know, there's not a demand for those birds and too many birds actually being released. And uh, those question marks are all really born out of a desire to uh, shoot more and to make more money, something that I would call hyper-commercial shooting, and I think that threatens uh, shooting as a whole. Charlie, do you agree with Patrick that some of these shoots are a bit excessive in many ways? Yeah, so I disagree with Patrick on many points. Um, I think one could put in the argument, you know, you shoot 100 in a day, if you accept to shoot 100 in a day, why shouldn't you shoot 1,000 over 10 days? But uh, I think really the, the biggest problem I have with it is it's a sort of sense of judgmentalness. People are drawing a line underneath what they do and, and they're sort of pointing to themselves and above and saying, that's fine. And they're saying anything beneath me should be banned. And I'm afraid I think Patrick's guilty of that. 
I think, Charlie, you know, that it's clear to draw the distinction. I'm not saying that big is necessarily bad and small is necessarily good, but I'm saying that, you know, when invertebrates are being denuded from an area, which is a scientific fact, and when, you know, gamekeepers are being told by game dealers, I'm sorry, I can't take your game because too much of it has been shot, you know, that is a uh, problem. And I think that you would probably see it as being a problem as well. Well, aren't you mistaking big bags for intensive game rearing? Um, sure, but you know, I'm not saying that big bags is necessarily bad. I'm saying that hyper-commercial shooting is bad, and big bags can be part of that. And it's this sort of, you know, bigger is better, and uh, and you know, desire to make more money, which I'm concerned about, and I think it threatens our sport, and then threatens British biodiversity in the long run, because as we all know, shooting can be a wonderful thing for the countryside and for the creatures that live in it when it's done right. Another side of uh, hyper-commercialism is that they will preach to people like you and I, Charlie, the sort of guys who are on the small shoot this idea that we really need them to defend us against those who are uh, anti-shooting and it's a case really of you know the cause purporting to be the solution uh, and I would like to see uh, people empowered people on shoots empowered and young keepers empowered to turn around and you know say to those people running the shoots and owning the shoots you know this is not right um, you know I'm not going to do these things that you're asking me to do in terms of young keepers being asked to uh, carry out a uh, uh, raptor persecution then perhaps you know ordering far more birds for the shoot than uh, the game dealers are ever going to possibly want. Charlie, Patrick also talks in his piece about these campaign groups using these big commercial shoots as justifications to ban shooting altogether. I mean, can you kind of see why that why their argument is sort of reinforced by these big commercial shoots where none of the birds then get taken home? No, I think their argument isn't really about the size of the shoots. They certainly bring in things that Patrick's been talking about. I mean, for example, the idea of um, uh, intensive rearing. I mean, I think that's definitely a problem. Uh, I think really what they go in on is stuff which uh, we we probably don't agree with, such as increasing rapture persecution when it's not increasing. Sure, uh, but you know it is still uh, an issue to some extent. And in the past, I think we've been massively in denial, and now we're able to talk about it to a greater extent than we ever have been before. But you know it's it's not over yet, and I think that that there is sort of light at the end of the tunnel. But we need to work very hard to get there, and there are people with their heads in the sand who really need to get their heads out of the sand. Thank you, Charlie and Patrick. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as Joe Johnson's review of David Cameron's memoir and Liam Halligan on Germany's ailing economy. And if you listen to our podcast, why not check out a live recording of Sam Leith's Spectator Books podcast? He'll be interviewing Robert Harris, the best-selling author of Fatherland, Enigma and Pompeii, live in Westminster on the 23rd of October. This event is subscriber only, so if you want to get a ticket, just visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Harris. And if you're not a subscriber, what on earth are you waiting for? Get a subscription at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, and we'll even throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number, the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for More Than a Number in your podcast app to download now.